Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I think it's probably been for about six years now that my good friend, Dr. Paul Dervazi, and I have connected around the start of the spring semester. Just, I think it sort of started by happenstance, and now we've just made it a routine where we we check in, see what's going on. Uh, Paul is one of the most creative people, if not the most creative person that I know, full stop. And I feel confident in saying that. And I've just been really grateful for ongoing communication, collaboration. I learn something from him every time. Uh, and Paul really keeps himself pretty busy across a number of different efforts. Uh, he is the CEO of Goldbug Interactive. And so a portion of our conversation today will speak to some of the great projects that they're working with there at Goldbug. He is also the new executive director of the Serious Play Conference, which is another topic that we'll explore. And I'm excited to get a chance to hear not only uh, his passion for that and vision for that conference moving forward. And then in addition to that, he's an instructor at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I know he'll get a chance to speak from that lens here today. But all of that grandiose introduction <laughs> complete here, Paul. Thanks for joining us again for another podcast. It's always great to catch up with you, friend. Are you kidding me? You are the most kind and generous person. I wish I could record you and play this for my wife just to any, you know, to really remind her of the value of who she's married to, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. It's such a treat to talk to you under any circumstance. So this podcast is always a really great excuse for us to catch up and, and see how our lives are moving and developing. And, you know, we've known each other for years. And so thank you. Thank you for the generous introduction. Thank you for having me on. And and we always have lots to talk about. Oh, absolutely. And uh, where my introduction may have felt a little bit short is to say that as it pertains to teaching with your being, a, again, an instructor at the University of Toronto, can you speak to what courses you're teaching there? And of then we'll course. probably pivot to the Serious Play Conference, but just to let people know kind of your areas of interest uh, as you, it pertains to education. Yeah, so I teach at the Faculty of Education. It's called OISE, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and it is part of the University of Toronto. And it, and it, uh, it has a series of different degrees within the program. One of them is a pre-service teacher training program. Uh, it's a two-year program where you don't only get your teaching certificate, but you walk away with a master's in teaching as well. So, which caused a lot of controversy in other Canadian university programs because nobody else got to give you a master's for your pre-service teaching degree. And everybody thought it was very unfair. So uh, we have invited some negative views of that, but I'm, I'm happy to teach these teachers as part of the program. We also teach masters and PhD students, uh, masters in education and, and you know PhD in education. And I'm in the area, my number one specialty is of course, games and learning. Uh, and that's one of my classes where I work with teachers and teach them various ways that they can implement games and play in their practice, regardless of their preschool, elementary, high school, whatever the case may be. I also teach social media in education. So thinking about how we can meaningfully incorporate social media, thinking about the dangers of social media and helping teachers navigate social media in their practice, which I think is a really important thing for them to learn. And occasionally I do more sort of standard educational technology classes. Super cool. And recently, uh, and I saw this online first and had to message you right away and I'm excited for us to explore some more. Uh, you became the new executive director of the Serious Play Conference. And the Serious yeah. Play Conference is one that I had the good fortune to be able to attend. That's where we've met in person. Uh, That's right. <laughs> as yeah. a part, part of that uh, event. 
And for those that are not familiar with the conference, uh, can you maybe uh, give us an overview of what it is? And then we'll maybe get into the backstory of how you came to become its new executive director. Yeah. So it's a conference that's been run for 18 years. Uh, it was founded and run by the magnificent uh, Sue Bola, who uh, this was her retirement project. Uh, she is now in her mid 80s and still a force of nature and decided that it was time to retire. She largely ran it herself. And over those 18 years, she created an incredible and diverse community of people who all are interested in games, play and learning in their various fields. And what makes the conference super unique is that she creates different tracks where you know, you have a healthcare track, a government and military track, a not-for-profit track, K-12 track, a higher education track. And each of these sectors or fields uh, share very practical experiences of how they're using games, play, simulations for training and learning and advancing their causes. And what it creates is a really nice environment where you're having people from all these different fields meeting together, sharing experiences. And, and to me, that is one of the most important sort of elements in provoking innovation. When you see what other people are doing outside of your world, you know, we live in a teaching world. When we move and see what architects are doing, what doctors are doing, sometimes that can inspire us. Um, one way I like to think about this, I used to teach uh, ancient history uh, in ancient history, I think it seems like <laughs> decades ago. And you know, the birth of Western civilization is uh, traditionally attributed to the island of Crete, uh, most famous because mythologically it's where the labyrinth was with the Minotaur. And it was the first civilization to really rise in the West, even before the, uh, the Athenians or the Spartans. And the reason for it, the reason that Crete rose first was because if you look at it on a map, it's at the crossroads of Africa, Asia, and Europe. And typically ships from all those different places would come to Crete as part of their trade routes. So they benefited from the cultural knowledge of all these different, you know, sort of communities around the Mediterranean basin. And that convergence of all these different ways of being, different technologies, um, really allowed for Crete to rise and get way ahead of everybody else at that time. And I see a nice clean metaphor because I see a conference like Serious Play as a Crete, right? In the sense that you have all of these people coming from different parts of the world, different sectors, different ways of being, and they're coming together as a very fertile node that really provokes innovative thinking, new ideas. And that's what I've always absolutely loved about this conference. And that's something that we're, you know, we feel very strongly about continuing, allowing for what I would call cross-pollination between different disciplines. That was very much my experience whenever I was there. Uh, as we were talking before we even recorded today, there was one in particular where, I, and I did, I gravitated to the education track, but then uh, found myself uh, walking into one session that focused on how this bank system was going about creating game-based learning simulations uh, for their tellers as an onboarding to that job uh, so that they could run them through just some real-world scenarios that they would likely face once they got started. Uh, and it was fascinating to see the way in which they were teaching using games uh, in that professional uh, workspace. And that and others were certainly great opportunities, as you mentioned, to look up and across different disciplines and get a chance to uh, to learn from everybody. And so um, how then did you become the executive director? Oh, the that, that is a great story. So that is a great <laughs> story. So 
Um, the last serious play was in Toronto, and it's very rare. The, the serious play is usually in the States. For a long time, it, you know, it's been everywhere. It's, it was Carnegie Mellon. It was a George Mason. It was a University of Buffalo and tons of other places. It moved around a lot. Sue moved it around. And it, it landed in Toronto. And I'm I'm in Canada. I'm just outside of Montreal. And I'm a Toronto boy. I was born in, and raised in Toronto. And so I helped Sue. Uh, quite a bit just to navigate the world of Toronto and who I knew. And, and she's had a few setbacks this time around. She was working with an organization that didn't kind of follow through with what they said they were going to do. And then, so the conference came together a bit last minute and had to be postponed till October. And in the midst of all of this, Sue announced her retirement. Uh, and, she, and I know just because I speak to her that she tried to negotiate passing the conference over to, I think, the University of Central Florida, some other, some other organizations, but for whatever reason, it didn't work out. So, and she announced to a group of us that have been going to the conference for a long time that she would be hosting a little retirement event on the second night of the conference. And so it was in a, in a, in a building not far from where the conference was being hosted at the at Toronto Metropolitan University, a university right downtown Toronto. So a bunch of us gathered, there was about 30 or 40 of us in the room. And there was that nice little kind of buffet set up with, a, you know, the roast beef and the rice and you just go around and everybody's talking and milling about. And Sue made a beautiful speech announcing her retirement. And there was a small group of us in a corner and I just turned around and asked, so who's going to take over the conference? I didn't realize what the state of it was or anything. I hadn't had a chance to talk to Sue about it too much. And there were a few people that I was speaking with who had been part of this conference since the very beginning. And they they said, you know, I don't think she has anybody. I think that she's still, you know, looking for somebody. There's a few interested parties that she's talking to, but I don't think she's settled onto anybody. And I said, okay, great. I hope it keeps going because I certainly have, you know, benefited enormously and I would miss this community enormously if for whatever reason it were to fall through. And then there was this elderly gentleman who I've seen at the conference a few times, but we've never had long discussions. It's almost like we are aware of each other, but, you know, I... and. And he looks at me, you know, and he and he looks at me right in the eyes. He goes, what about you? Do you want to take over the conference? And I looked and I took a step back and I said, uh, no. And I started laughing like it hadn't even entered my head to think of that. And then he looks at me with kind of a Yoda feel to him. And he says, just by the way that you laughed, I know you're going to take over this conference. And I was like, what? You know, I, I was totally, it was just the weirdest thing, right? And then and then I think he kind of planted the seed. You know, I walked away going, oh, wait, what would it look like to take over? Do I have the bandwidth to do this? What would Sue think? So I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I liked the idea. I just started thinking, you know, I, I love this conference. I've organized conferences in the past. I love community building. It, it's actually connected to the work in our studio. We do work in serious games. Uh, many of the people there are part of our community. So the, this gentleman's comments germinated. It's almost like a wizard came in and cast a spell on me. And by 24 hours after this interaction, I was standing in front of Sue in the hallway of the conference. I said, Sue, do you have any serious takers? And she goes, oh, I'm in a few conversations. And I said, Sue, I would love for you to consider me. And I'd love to talk about what that would look like. And she looked at me and she goes, I think you'd make a great producer for this conference. And I was like, I was, I was taken aback by her positive endorsement. And then we had a series of talks and discussed what it would look like and what we, how the handover would go and what she wanted and what I wanted. And they were all very positive. Everything moved in the right direction. And finally, we decided to formalize the arrangement and made an official announcement. Sue retired. 
announced that I would be taking over. And that all happened sort of late November, mid to late November. Uh, and then all of December and early January has been an absolute scramble to get our heads wrapped around the vast volumes of information that Sue has been sharing with us, like, you know, letters and files and folders and contacts and names and all kinds of things. So we're 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 coming up for air, and I think we're we're in a good place. We found a venue and a location for the next event, and we've also been partnering. So where we stand now, we will be hosting the conference in Toronto again in August, from the twelfth to the fourteenth of August. Uh, we've changed the venue to the University of Toronto Mississauga campus, which is an absolutely stunning campus uh, in a suburb of Toronto, surrounded by nature, state-of-the-art facilities. We were very lucky. It's a very solicited space, and I had to do a lot of back-channeling uh, in order to open up a little space for us and a lot of convincing and arm-bending and networking in the University of Toronto world. And it's a particularly good venue, one, because they're launching a game studies program at that campus and they're eager to shed light on it. So they see a lot of great opportunities for this conference being hosted there, but even more exciting or equally exciting, depending on your perspective, their library at this campus has acquired one of the largest video game collections in Canada. Uh, and it got national press coverage when they'd made this purchase. And what they're going to do is they're gonna curate uh, this video game collection for our participants. And so it'll be very cool for them to go, you know, get exposed to all of these vintage games that have been curated. They're going to be guided tours and they might even present on, you know, the history of this, this collection and what the significance of it is and all of that. So lots of good game stuff going on there. We're really, really excited by the facilities and we're now the call for speakers is out. Uh, so if any of your listeners want to want to talk about all the great things that they're doing at the intersection of games, play, role play, simulation, and they'd like to share those experiences with a very receptive audience, uh, we are taking speaker calls for speakers now. So that's it in probably a little more than a nutshell. But <laughs> uh, that's great, Paul. No, and I I'll, I'll build upon that point. So if people are interested, there's a call for that. And obviously you could seek this out as an opportunity. And if you find yourself as a, let's say uh, you're in Nebraska and you go, I don't know if I'm headed to Toronto. Uh, and as such, you know, what is the why for me to continue with? Like, you're kind of wondering perhaps why we're having this conversation on the Nebraska podcast. Uh, I'm really grateful that we get the opportunity. And I know that because Paul lives and breathes this world, uh, as you heard just through the conference, but having these connections across these different fields and disciplines and understanding that the role that these games can play, and we're not talking about your Jeopardy review games, right? We're talking about like meaningful, as the conference name suggests, serious play, like the opportunity to learn. But with some of these different mechanics potentially like involved, uh, gamification being a term that comes to mind is important, not only in an education sense, but also across all these other disciplines. And so it's represented not only in our discussion of this conference, so it's just good to know that stuff's out there, but also uh, in Paul's work with Goldbug, uh, which we'll get into here shortly. But uh, Paul, the, maybe you kind of drive that point home for us, mm -hmm. uh, give you a little space to just kind of speak to, for, for folks that maybe aren't steeped in games, gamification, and the role that could potentially play uh, in lesson design and in a public K-12 educational space, um, set the stage for us, I guess. Can we, yeah. you're so you're so great in that, and I'm sure we could spend an hour on that topic, but yeah. frame that for uh, us if you could. 
Yeah, so it's really interesting. I'm, I'm going to take a few steps back and then and then land exactly where where you want me to land. So what, one thing is, so in my career, I was a teacher for many years. I, I taught uh, middle school and high school for over 20 years. And my first 10 years of my practice, I didn't go to a single conference. I just, you know, went about my business, taught my classes. And then I went to a few non-game related conferences and love them. I, I just thought like, this is very cool. You know, you're just exposed to new ideas, interesting people. And then independently of those, I started experimenting with games in my practice and, you know, using video games and turning my class into a game and other things. And, and then I went to my first games conference because I, I started getting into the space and thought I, I want to learn a little bit more. And it was a mind blowing experience, um, it's especially your first one, because it's just amazing to see all of these people sharing practical examples of what they are doing at, at all, in all of these ways that you can't imagine with play and games. And I walked away from there, from my first games conference with my head absolutely brimming with ideas and excitement and potential. And I think that's, that's really the great value because, you know, I, I could talk forever about the importance of play and games in education. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll start with fundamentally, play is how nature teaches, right? Why do kids play? Because it is an accelerated teaching impulse in kids. Like that's play's role is to teach. That's That's what it's there for. And you even see it in the animal kingdom. When your little kitten is pawing at the ball of yarn, it's rehearsing, you know, hunting. Um, and we see this, right? Like, and when kids are role playing, like, oh, I'm playing store, right? They're they're preparing themselves to participate in society. So the relationship between play and learning is inextricable. You can't separate the two, but we have. We've done what we do with our scientific minds and separate one thing from another, one element from another element. And one of the, I think, downfalls of the state of education is how underserved play is. And I know that there's a big emphasis in early childhood education. There's a lot of big movement to turn kindergarten to play and inquiry-based and all of that. But I want to see that bleed into the older grades as well. And games are, of course, designed play. So games are crucial. And, you know, when we talk about games and learning, people say, oh, as you were saying, we can play Jeopardy or throw a Kahoot and that type of thing. And that's great. But that is the absolute tip of the iceberg. There is so much potential in this world that can absolutely transform your practice. Because when we think about games, right, we use the word game and we have our ideas about what games are, but what they ultimately are, are interactive experiences, and games teach us to be interactive, right? And, and one thing that all teachers should be looking for in the age of social media, the internet, and video games is to appeal to their students in an interactive way, right? And teachers know this. Increasingly, we talk about don't be the sage on the stage, be the guide on the side, right? Like don't you have a transmission model of education. Don't teach, but create the conditions where learning takes place. All of these things are pointing towards student involvement, student-centered learning and interactivity. And even if you don't cleanly use games in your practice, you can still learn from games in terms of how they're interactive, how they engage, and how we can strip mine those mechanics and those ideas and apply them to our practice. And with a conference like Serious Play or any exposure you may have to the world of games, learning, training, and education, it's just an eye opener for what the possibilities are. 
And one thing that I value is my early conference stuff was all in the education world. And that was amazing. I learned a lot early on, but then I kind of plateaued, like your learning curve plateaus and it tends to be the same stuff over and over again. Like there's only so many lessons I can learn about flipped classrooms or project-based learning. So then when I started moving into the play world, what was really interesting is I started seeing a lot of things that people were doing outside of education. And I have to say that had a huge impact in terms of how I brought back a lot of what I learned to my practice and everybody was like, my God, you're so innovative. Look at all these amazing things that you're doing. And a lot of that just has to do with being exposed to what people are doing in realms outside of education. You start a hero's journey. You kind of follow uh, the white rabbit right down the rabbit hole into the, uh, the unknown. And then from there, find yourself, yeah, on the other side, transform. Then you just don't see the work the same. Uh, as you did previously. I, I would say that that was my experience as well, pressing into this more that whether, you know, Stephen Isaacs tells me to read Paul Darvazi's blog. And then the next thing I know, <laughs> yeah, I uh, can't not think about lesson design without considering uh, the way in which those types of game elements might enhance the learning, might enhance the engagement. I mean, it, uh, it's been so inspiring too, Paul, to see how that passion that you have uh, and that lens has made its way into you. Now you're like full-time CEO role with Goldbug Interactive, right? Uh, and so for people that are not familiar with Goldbug, can you kind of speak to what your company sure. is and sort of how that passion for games and serious play was a catalyst for you venturing out into that role? Yeah. I mean, a lot of this is just like weird luck, coincidences, chance meetings. And I think part of it too is putting yourself in a position for all that stuff to happen, right? In hockey, I'm a big ice hockey fan, as I've mentioned to you many times. We say you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? And so the thing is in hockey, you got to keep shooting and one of them is bound to go in, right? It's hard to make a goal in hockey, unless you're Austin Matthews. So, um, which will mean nothing to anybody who doesn't know ice hockey. But if you know ice hockey, you know what I'm talking about. So it was something where the work I was doing with games was receiving some attention, but it was pretty original. And I was fortunate enough to work at a school that basically gave me a really wide berth to experiment. And I got away with doing things that I may not have been able to get away with in other schools. And what that allowed is for me to have practical models. Like this isn't just an idea. Let me show you how it works. And, and it was very compelling because it worked. <laughs> and I started working there's a UNESCO uh, tier one organization called UNESCO MGIEP, and they're based in India. And their goal for you know the last five or six years is to implement games and learning in schools in Southeast Asia. And they had connected to my work and they were really interested. And I wrote a white paper for them that got a lot of attention. And then they brought me in to, to speak at some of their conferences. And one of those was a technology conference that was in a, in a really beautiful part of India called Visakhapatnam. Try saying that. It's a mouthful. Uh, otherwise known as Vizak, Vizak. So that's a little bit more accessible. And so uh, we went to this conference in Vizak and I was on a panel with Elisa Navarro, uh, a Mexican-based game developer who'd been creating games for schools, museums, and the United Nations uh, out of Mexico City. She'd been running a studio and she's, you know, she's awesome. And I have a connection to Mexico City. My dad lived there for 20 years. Uh, my brother and sister lived there for a long time. So I've been to Mexico City a lot and I love it. I love the culture, the food, the vibe. And so when I met this person from Mexico City who was on my panel, we had a lot to talk about. Um, and my parents are originally from Chile. So I grew up speaking Spanish. And so we, you know, she speaks perfect English, but we, we, we kind of went back and forth. And we just had a lot in common and we had the same vision and we, we were really connected. We really bonded. 
And I was in a situation about six months later where there's a university here in Montreal called McGill, a pretty prestigious university. And it was during the pandemic and they had a small budget to create a game to have their remote students learn about their library system. And I have a connection to McGill and they approached me and said, do you wanna make this game? And it was on a shoestring budget, but they promised me all of this help from their IT department. Well, once I agreed, the IT department disappeared uh, through no fault of the person who hired me. It was just some bizarre internal politics. And I was pooping my pants because I had to put a game that was gonna be seen by all these smart people. And I had no money and no support and nothing to do this. So I had a call with Elisa, my soon to be partner, uh, about something completely different. And I was kind of, you know, complaining about this. I was like, this is the situation I'm in. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. How am I going to make a game? And there's no money. And she goes, listen, right now we're having a bit of a slump. I have, I, I don't have work for this month. I have a unity program or I have artists and I've been approached by Montreal for the possibility of moving my studio because Montreal gives you big tax breaks for studios. So we attract, we have some of the biggest studios in the world here in Montreal. It's a big video game development hub. And they reach out to studios to try to convince them to come. And they and she didn't know anything about Montreal. She wasn't really interested, but she kind of thought it was an interesting coincidence that I was affiliated with this Montreal University. She'd been invited to Montreal. So she thought, let me put my toes in the water and see what this whole Montreal thing is about. So it was like the clouds had parted and an angel had descended and she saved me. I mean, to have her, you know, help me with technology, with brainstorming, with the, and, and we managed to shoestring together this pretty awesome game for the library system. And we discovered that we really liked working together and that we, we complemented each other really well. And we made the decision to start a studio here in Montreal that would pick up where her studio had left off in Mexico. We, we, we have all the talent available to us that she's been using for years, uh, but we also have the benefits of, of opening the studio. And then we've been running the studio together for three years. We specialize in making games for cultural institutions, humanitarian agencies, learning games, games for schools, um, anything that really involves learning in games. We've also moved a bit into e-learning. We've had some big e-learning projects. Uh, we're working on an animation, a small animation project now. Because of Elisa's long time in the business, she has tons of very talented people that we pull in for all these different projects. And it's gone really well. And what we've decided after three years is we want to lean more into healthcare particularly pediatrics, so helping children in, you know, along various kind of healthcare journeys, because we feel one of the things that my partner and I are very passionate about is impact. We really want our products, our games to make a difference. And one thing we've realized is through healthcare, you can have major impact. A lot of these hospitals are motivated to use these games with young patients, and, and we can do something there. They tend to have more money than some of the other sectors. So the combination of those two has made that world really attractive to us. And we've now uh, been working very closely with JDRF, which is one of the biggest you know, international diabetes research organizations. And we were working on a comic book to support the mental health of young patients. And we're working through grants to create a video game to invite type one diabetic patients into the world, new patients to help them understand what their journey is gonna be like and to support them. And we're also in conversations with one of the children's hospitals here about developing games to support autism and also uh, mental health issues of children in relation to climate change. It's absolutely incredible. And if people are interested in learning more about what Goldbug Interactive has done 
previously, uh, our earlier episodes, um, pretty much every January with Paul, <laughs> have uh, showcased some of those efforts. Uh, but to lean into this a little bit more, for those that are listening to this episode, obviously, can you give us like a little better sense of what one of those uh, let's call them like simulation type experiences are, whether it be for diabetes or uh, mental wellness. Because if all I think about when I think of games is Jeopardy or something that I get out of a box at home, I might not mm-hmm. understand how this can be an onboarding or teaching tool for an individual in this context. Okay, great. So let's start with type one diabetes, right? What does type one diabetes look like now? Um, maybe some of your listeners know people that have it. It's a rare disease that typically starts in childhood, but can it can affect you in, in adulthood. And it is a disease that thankfully, because of the discovery of insulin by uh, Frederick Banting, a Toronto-born physician, I will add. It's really funny. So my daughter has type 1 diabetes. So I have a vested interest in that world. And part of the reason that I approach them is I saw that our onboarding journey was terrible. And not so much for the adults, but the way that it works is hospitals have their nurses and nutritionists work with new families. And and they're not teachers. They're very busy people who've been asked to onboard, but they're not teachers. They're not pedagogically trained. And they just do these kind of slightly flimsy PowerPoint presentations over two or three hour Zoom calls to get new families on board. And you see this bored kid who's been asked to be at the Zoom call is not absorbing anything. The parents are barely holding on. But if you know anything about type 1 diabetes, it's a disease that requires constant monitoring and constant management. And it's everything from counting carbs before meals, administering regular injections of insulin, or if you have, you're lucky enough to have a pump, to manage the pump, to monitor your child's sugar all day long. So it's, it's an absolute game changer for a family. You go from being a normal, happy family, and then all of a sudden from one day to the next, you have this extra person, which is diabetes living with you that you have to watch. It's like having a newborn all the time. So it's a lot. And we are very fortunate in my family that my wife could devote herself to that. And she's got, you know, there's a doctor in her somewhere because she's methodical and she, she stays on top of everything. But there are many people who just don't have that, you know, and we get in Quebec, which I have to say does a lot of things badly in terms of healthcare and taxes and all kinds of things. They are amazing to support childhood diseases. And we have not had to put a penny out of pocket for this disease, which could be quite expensive otherwise. So we're very, 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 very fortunate. But what I see is all those who are not as fortunate, single mothers that have two kids with T1D because there's a genetic element. So it's possible for multiple kids to be born with it in one family or or families that just don't have the education or the resources or the eating habits that it can be really challenging. So immediately as a game designer, I'm, I'm going through this process. I'm going, this is not how kids should be learning about this disease. I mean, like we have a world of interactive media one that could reduce the workload for these nutritionists and for these nurses, right? Because they are already working at capacity and then they have to teach these classes, which takes them away from direct patient care. So I thought hospitals will love automated onboarding platforms because it's going to reduce the person power around these training sessions and the kids who are the patients, right? And they're the kind of secondary people when these presentations are going on because they're not made for kids. 
if we were to create a platform that would be interactive and animated and dynamic and that starts with like an animated pancreas to show you why your body is not producing insulin and then scenarios that you might encounter like when kids at school approach you and say hey what's that thing stuck to your arm what do you say how do you manage it because there's a lot of stigma especially if you're an adolescent and you have this you feel really awkward and you feel really you know alone with it and so I don't think that kids are very well prepared for that journey. And I think by having interactive scenarios and having support for them in a way that makes sense to them, which are kids that are growing up on Roblox and Minecraft, and to create that for onboarding would be a really, really powerful way. And that's what we're aiming towards. We want to develop a platform and an interactive, whether it's a video game or you know game elements that come together. And I'm very fortunate to have a, a medical team that's behind the work that we do. And that's kind of the magic formula. So we've generated a lot of interest from the diabetes community, from research foundations to work with us in order to start developing these ideas and getting them out there. Is it too much of a leap to say that that the lens with which you applied what you know about games to the scenario with your daughter, right? Like, like to having, like you found yourself in an, a learning experience where you thought, hey, <laughs> this could be transformed and better suited to the audience for all the benefits that you outlined there, that that also is really fundamentally the same that educators might apply to their own lesson design. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, right? I feel that even, you know, when I teach games and learning, I always have a handful of students that just don't play games at all. It's the first time they feel at first they're feeling a little intimidated. They're like, there are some really there's people who know a lot about games in this class and I don't. Am I in the right place? And I always assure them, believe me, by the end of this class, you're going to realize you were absolutely in the right place. Right. And 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 it takes very little to take somebody who's not interested or, or scared of games, even like, oh, video games, they're hard, I'm bad at them or it's, you know, they're poison. They're destroying our children, whatever the perception is. It takes very little to, to get into that world and learn just enough to start thinking about it. Um, the other side is that we also have a huge cohort of young teachers who grew up with video games. And I'm sure many listeners here um, have played games or their kids play games or they play with their kids or they grew up playing video games. And what's really interesting about that is, is and I see this in my classes, is I have young teachers who have this whole vast history of playing games and they've never once connected it to their teaching practice. And there's a very thin membrane separating all that gameplay and their teaching practice. And what I do is I just burst that membrane and it is this aha moment for them where all of a sudden the tens of thousands of hours they spent you know, or they think they misspent playing games, they realize is actually a resource to become a better teacher. Because all those mechanics and ideas, they, they haven't translated those into their teaching practice. And it only takes a little bit of a nudge and a little bit of a change in your mind frame. And all of a sudden you realize you have this incredible resource that can inform your teaching. And there's so much out there to help teachers better connect it. And there's so many opportunities for even teachers that are not as game knowledgeable or as game friendly to kind of, you know, learn about games, start playing games, you know, with their kids or on their own, whether, and it doesn't matter if it's digital, non-digital board games, all of them teach us things that can be used in our practice once you start thinking about it through that lens. So yeah, I, I do think that to your point, that it's the same way that I'm thinking, you know, we need an amazing interactive experience to dramatically improve onboarding for type one diabetes. And incidentally, 
that, you know, as soon as I brought this up with, with the doctors, they were fawning over it because they, they see it. And, and it was just the right thing at the right time. And it could have a huge impact. And I think that translates cleanly into education. We have kids that are used to interactivity. They want to be involved, to, to have feedback and games can teach us how to do that in our classes. When I say it every week, uh, 30 minutes goes fast, but in our conversations, we usually extend these out a little bit more. Uh, and so as we work towards the end of the episode, uh, I wonder, are there a few foundational themes or talking points uh, as you teach the class and you're helping pre-service teachers conceptualize what it might mean uh, to make those connections, right? So in bursting that membrane, as you outlined there, uh, what are some of those because uh, I'm sure having taught this course a number of times and worked with enough people that while certain principles might not apply to everyone, there are some that have bubbled up as being most prevalent towards helping uh, folks tear down that wall. Yeah, I think talking about my approach might be helpful. So the way that I, I run the class is the first kind of phase is two. One, reading a few papers, like academic papers that justify it. Like, like there is actual evidence that proves that this stuff that I'm about to teach you actually works, right? So that's important. I'll interrupt you, I guess. That, that's part of what I hope today's conversation does for folks, right? Legitimately, uh, like, like we're not just talking about Jeopardy. This exists across so many different careers, professions, fields, and has this applicability uh, for the future of our learners and, and can be a part of their present to the degree that which we're able to bring those practices in and start to embed them. Sorry to break your train of thought no, there, Paul. Yeah. But, but yes. And so there, and there's, there's so much evidence out there. Like, I mean, I'll, even if you don't have access to an academic database, go on Google Scholar and just put in the search term games and learning and look at the titles of those papers. I mean, it's going to blow your mind. It's page after page after page of studies that show all these amazing initiatives related to using games and play and learning and, and supporting it. So that that's the first part is to support it. One of the, the books that I always recommend because it is, it's not just one of the best books written about games and learning, but it's one of the best teaching books and learning books I've ever read in my life. And that's James Paul G's what video games have to teach us about learning and literacy. It is a really readable book. It just comes in at 200 pages. And to me, it had probably the single biggest impact on my career of any book I've ever read. So it, it's, it's one that I would certainly put out there. So early in the class, they play games and they read the evidence, right? And then the second phase is I share practical models. I, I show them what teachers have done and why it's been effective. So that shows them, right? Like teachers love takeaways. It's one thing to talk about things in the airy fairy abstract. It's another thing to see the, the word from the trenches, right? Where this is actually work. And I show them things like how teachers have implemented commercial video games, not just games made for learning, but games like Minecraft and Rome Total War and, you know, all these games that you would never think have a place in the classroom. And I show them examples of how they've been used in the classroom. Then the phase after that is showing them how a class or a school can be restructured according to game principles. And, and I show them the examples of the Quest to Learn school, uh, what some people like Michael Matera are doing in terms of gamifying their classrooms, uh, some experiences that I've shared with them. And then in the final phase, I ask them to design their own learning game. And this is what's very scary to many of my students. I'm not a game person. I'm not a game designer. How am I going to make a learning game, right? But by being exposed to games, being exposed to theories and, and seeing the models, all of a sudden they start really understanding the value. And what's remarkable is the games I get are incredible 
incredible. Like I, I kid you not, I was really just expecting the first time I taught this class, a lot of reskinned Monopoly games or some like, you know, like Classroom Jeopardy, right? Like no problem with Classroom Jeopardy, but it is the lowest hanging fruit or Kahoot or whatever. And I have seen like these incredibly beautiful, unique games created by people that have very little game experience. And my point there, and this is what I say to them, is that my goal isn't for you to become a game designer. It'd be nice if you did, but that's not my goal. My goal is for you to very deliberately think of yourself as a designer, period, because I feel that teachers should lean into that identity. I think design thinking should be an essential component of any teacher training course because we are all designers. Whether we accept it or not, when you're creating a lesson plan, you're designing an experience. When you're creating a, a unit plan, you're designing an experience, but we don't think of it that way. And thinking of it that way does matter. It does make a difference because if we're thinking of ourselves as experienced designers and not teachers, that's where you start creating those interactive experiences where all the work is in the design. And then you can step back and watch the machine take over that you've designed and all of these kids having these interactive experiences. And games teach us that. You know, in my class, I use a game as a way to think of yourself as a designer, but I very deliberately tell them this is for you to use what you're using to design this game in order to redesign or rethink your classes. So that all of that together helps burst the membrane, right? And it's a, it's a series of things, but it's a series of aha moments. And I think the anchor, the absolutely most important thing about what I do is sharing experiences, right? Case studies where it's actually been done and not just, you know, moving in the abstract, which is very, you know, it's nice, nice idea, but people have trouble implementing abstract ideas that they don't have models to work with. Well, then I guess as we bring things to a close and you referenced the text, the book that you mentioned a moment ago, and so I'll try to put that in the show notes uh, in addition to a link to the Serious Play Conference where you can certainly go and hang out and learn more about this topic. Um, what are some other resources maybe uh, for folks that are interested in following up on this podcast and learning a little bit more? Uh, do you have some, uh, I'm sort of yeah, putting you on so the spot here, Paul, but. Uh, I would say for, for slightly more advanced interested people, um, there's a really cool book called A Theory of Fun by Raph, R-A-P-H, Coster with a K. And what I love about this book, it's a game design book, but it's also, if you look at it through a teacherly lens, you, you read the book and th don't think of it as a game, think of it as an instructional design book, right? Even though it's meant to be a game design book. But one of the theories that he puts forth, which I find fascinating and so important to really support this idea of the connection between play and learning and games and learning, that he says neurologically, what makes any game it doesn't matter if it's a first-person shooter or Fortnite or Minecraft or Grand Theft Auto V. What makes any game engaging is always and almost exclusively learning. And you're like, what? Like, what are you learning in GTA V other than how to steal cars and shoot people? But if you think about it, anytime you play a game, even tic-tac-toe, you're having to think. You are strategizing. You are thinking of what you're going to do. You do it, and then you see the response to what you do. And that's all learning. And what happens is that's where the dopamine gets fired into your brain. 
So that learning in games actually has a physiological element and that's what makes games. You don't think of it that way, but if you break down what's going on with that, there's always a part of the brain that gets lit up that is the learning part of the brain. And the satisfaction of putting that learning into practice is what's stimulating your enjoyment of the game. So what's mind-blowing about this theory and about this beautiful book is that games, and just like I said before, play and learning is inextricable. Games and learning are inextricable. Like the success of games is based on learning, and therefore it's not a far cry for the success of learning to be based on games. So that's one resource, a theory of fun. Uh, and then beyond that, I would say just go on Google and start searching things that make sense to you. Like if you are a kindergarten teacher and you want to know how to use games in your practice, honestly, just Google search game-based learning, kindergarten, games, kindergarten, and you will get page after page of resources, videos, ideas, because it's, I feel that every discipline and every age group has a slightly different angle on this. And this field is so fertile now that there's examples and case studies and everything out there for pretty much every way that you can think of learning and how games have been incorporated into them. So aside from these very kind of specific resources, I honestly would not venture to give more specific ones. The ones that I've mentioned have general application. Beyond that, I would just encourage a little bit of inquiry-based learning and having teachers go in there and find the stuff that's meaningful to them. And I'll add one more point here as uh, we kind of bring things to a close. With generative AI technology now, you have a resource that, especially I think of like Microsoft's being on creative mode, that you could get into a dialogue about where that might go with the chatbot mm -hmm. that would support your thinking. And as I certainly am an advocate for the AI technology and its role in education and hopefully how it transforms practices, uh, I love a number of the, I'll just say teacher task tools that are out there right now that help make our classroom teachers work a little bit more efficient. And, and I do think there's a tremendous value in that. I'm not undermining that whatsoever. And <laughs> so I can hold both these at the same time. If all we're utilizing that technology for is to make to make it faster to make oh, worksheets, yeah, no. um, I think we're, we're selling things a little bit short. And yeah. my hope is that this technology provides an opportunity to get into a conversational dialogue with a chatbot about the ways in which you might be able to learn from the whole of the internet in your context uh, and bring some of these aspirations into reality. Totally. And hot tip, hot tip on AI and chat GPT. So listen to this and your listeners will love this and hopefully you can investigate and figure it out. You can now very well, always, you can create interactive games on chat GPT with a prompt. Like there's increasingly, you can find these on the internet prompt. So what's the value of this? Um, there's, for example, a professor, uh, I think his name is something Breen, at, I think Santa Clara University in California. I, I probably got most of that wrong, but what he does is he teaches history and he creates chat prompts that are, for example, the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? And you tell ChatGPT, this, you are going to create a game based on the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is the setting. These are the characters. These are... So the prompt is about a page long. The student puts that prompt into ChatGPT, and then that prompt starts, you are in the Situation Room in the White House at 635 on April 2nd, and you have just been contacted by a Soviet general because there's a, you know, a ship has crossed into international waters carrying new, blah, blah, blah. what do you do, right? And then it gives you all these options. And you can play for like two hours. 
And ChatGPT, just with those parameters, draws from its own knowledge of the Cuban Missile Crisis, its own knowledge of everything that would serve. And teachers can now create, I would say quite easily, with no coding, super elaborate simulations for their students to support history, to support science, maybe literature. You know, there's so many things. So to your point, when we're thinking about going beyond a worksheet with ChatGPT, this is a great sort of example of how these creative applications can transform education in a way that's accessible to teachers. Oh, Paul, we could chat all day about these things. I so love it. I appreciate that. I'm going to go check that out too. I had not considered that use case and we'll uh, uh, be following up on that one as well. And I think I'll just bring things to a close by saying thank you. I, I'm always grateful for the time that you uh, freely give to be able to share, to connect, uh, um, speak to the work that you're doing. Uh, and I love that every time we do get a chance to chat, you're moving this uh, collective advocacy and work forward. So thanks for giving us a little window into all of that uh, and inspiration, hopefully to press into these within our own work and also uh, an avenue through which to connect with others. Serious Play Conference. Nice, nice. I The gratitude is all mine. Uh, it's such a pleasure to talk to a like-minded person. You know, you're, you know, you never talk about how you're part of this world, at least not with me all the time, but you've done so much great work in the area. I so much admire your work. I love the work that you're doing now. And it's just such a pleasure to be given the opportunity to talk about things that I love so much. So thank you very, very much for that. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, anytime, Paul, and probably next January as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll mark it on my calendar. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, great to connect. Uh, be sure if you're listening to check out the show notes for all the resources that are there. And uh, until we get a chance to chat next time, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.